Today is Trinity Sunday, and I'm, in my thoughts, I'm chasing after some uh, difficult material. So, if I, um, so I, I beg your indulgence, um, and uh, and I, I, if I fall off one side or another, I uh, would expect or hope that you are have a heart full of forgiveness. Which is to say, I wrote up my sermon because it's Trinity Sunday, so strap in. Um, I often begin my Trinity sermons by joking about how perilous it is to preach on this subject, as the Trinity is notoriously difficult to explain without inadvertently falling into one or another of the classic heresies. In the spirit of that joke, there is even a little cartoon on YouTube called St. Patrick's Bad Analogies, in which the blessed saint gives his classic analogies while being heckled by a pair of Irish peasants who have better theology. It's a hoot, and I recommend it. However, my reflections this year begin with the observation that for my entire working life, the idea that I would worry about committing a Trinitarian heresy has basically been nothing more than a punchline. My mentors, my colleagues, with very few exceptions throughout my ministry, have overwhelmingly viewed the Trinity as obscure at best, but mostly irrelevant. My seminary degree did not even require a credit in Trinitarian theology in order to graduate. If the topic of the Trinity has generated any energy at all in my lifetime, it has come from a criticism of the Trinity, namely that the traditional language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was formulated in a patriarchal age and therefore perpetuates the patriarchal paradigm. And this is a strong argument. How can we say that we honestly believe men and women to be equal if we believe that God is a man, or, from a Trinitarian perspective, two-thirds masculine? So because of that problem, a fair amount of energy has been spent trying to extricate the Trinity from its patriarchal encoding. Unfortunately, most of the proposed solutions to that problem tend to fall back into the classic heresy of modalism, which is why I, for the moment, am sticking with the original formula. Now, I'm aware that I have probably lost a few of you already. But don't worry, what interests me today is not how to solve the problem of patriarchy in our language or how to explain why modalism is a problem. No, what interests me is why, in my experience, most church leaders have been more likely to care about dismantling patriarchy than to care about understanding Trinitarian theology. Oh, everybody agrees that the Trinity has a dignified place in our spiritual heritage. Plus, we can't really get rid of it because we have ecumenical relationships. We don't want the Catholics to think our baptisms are invalid because we're using Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. That said, Trinitarian theology doesn't exactly inspire a lot of passion, and the old words these days feel borderline embarrassing. It's like having a racist grandpa. You'll love him. He's the sweetest guy, and he'd give you the shirt off his back, but if you had an ethnically ambiguous girlfriend, she'd need to be prepped before you brought her to Thanksgiving dinner. Similarly, if one to her invite a millennial to church, one might be compelled to prep them about the stuff that doesn't play well these days, including the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, uh, just the Spirit, that'll be fine. The key operative factor here is shame, 
and I think that is a clue as to why the classic Trinitarian formula is off-putting while dismantling patriarchy and racism and transphobia and indigenous reconciliation are all so energizing. On the subject of indigenous reconciliation, I am well aware of the remains of the 215 indigenous children discovered in Kamloops. But take a moment to notice that some of you are now asking why is Harwood Jones banging on about the Trinity when that just happened? I'll come to that. But for now, notice where the energy is and where the energy isn't, because that is my subject. So, the Trinity is embarrassing, which has to do with the experience of shame. Shame has to do with anxiety about identity and belonging. I feel ashamed, I worry that I'm not I'm not worthy, I am not acceptable, and that I will be abandoned and excluded. Now, shame is not the same thing as guilt. Guilt is about what you do. Shame is about who you are. If you're guilty of something, you can be punished, or make restitution, or work toward redemption. If you're ashamed, there's no fix, because who you are is what is unacceptable, and therefore you can never be a full member of a community. The only solution against the threat of shame, if you could call it a solution, is to distance yourself from the problematic identity, to present yourself as something other than what and who you are, essentially as a strategy to fool people into accepting you. But then there's always the fear that you'll be found out and abandoned. And there's a further problem that chasing after an identity means running at goalposts that are constantly moving, so that no matter who you become, you cannot outrun the shame. Shame is a big problem right now for English-speaking elites. There's a joke that only white people fantasize about time machines that go backward. And it gets a laugh, precisely because the truth it reveals is awkward and painful. To be any combination of white, male, straight, educated, wealthy, or powerful is to have received the benefits of centuries of exploitation and oppression, and everybody knows it. So to be privileged today is to be ashamed. The solution is therefore to identify as an ally towards those who do not share your privilege. However, the whole thing remains energized by shame and anxiety, and is therefore prone to imposter syndrome and shifting goalposts and all the other problems. What in the world does this have to do with the Trinity? At one time, Anglican clergy were social elites, whose status depended on the same kinds of qualities as other elites, whiteness and maleness, of course, but also confidence and specialized education. At that time, how you preached on Trinity Sunday could determine who you hung out with and whether you would have a shot at being a cathedral dean. So, of course, there was energy and despair to get your trinity right, and energy and despair from your colleagues and competitors to tear you down if you screwed up. Furthermore, Anglicanism was itself an elite denomination. It was the state church of the British Empire, which meant that it occupied a privileged position not only in England but especially in the colonies. George Bush Sr. converted from the Baptist Church to the Episcopal Church in order to elevate his social status. We Anglicans have overwhelmingly been a church of the white, the wealthy, the educated, and the powerful. So even if the folks in the pew couldn't explain the Trinity, they liked to go to a church where the rector could. 
But then Christendom died, and the evils of patriarchy and racism and colonialism came home to roost, and society's elites, particularly boomers, abandoned Christianity, and consumer capitalism was there to fill the void. So at the same time as the evils of patriarchy and racism and colonialism and Christian triumphalism were being named and shamed, salvation came to mean personal freedom. And the sacrament of this new salvation was consumption. Material consumption, certainly, but also and especially the consumption of ideas and experiences, which meant that for those who embraced the new paradigm, which was a group overwhelmingly white and privileged, the Church became one spiritual choice in a spiritual marketplace, which changed the Church into a commodity, a thing that we choose based on how we feel. And of course, for the elites, the strategy of distancing yourself from that very elite identity as privileged involved distancing themselves from the old paradigm of Christendom. And so for us as remnant Christians, remnant Anglicans in a post-colonial world, we are part of the identity that the elites need to get away from in order to say to themselves they had nothing to do with the horrible things that were perpetrated by colonialism and patriarchy and so forth, not like those Christians because it was Christianity that went hand in glove with it. We Anglicans are used to being in the club of privilege. It's baked into our culture. These elites were our peers and our friends, and the sins that were being named and shamed were real and problematic. So it was understandable that we shared in that conversation and many of those concerns. However, if we are honest about what we are treating as sacred in practice, we need to take a critical look at our own anxieties as people of privilege and ask ourselves whether shame is driving the bus. Because if it is, we are missing out on what our spiritual forebears have been trying to teach us about salvation. So back to the 215 kids. Those kids were abused, neglected, and abandoned by a Christian institution at a time when a good Trinitarian sermon could get you a deanship. It is tempting to draw a crude line between those two points and conclude that Trinitarian theology is useless at best and complicit in racist genocide at worst. However, I believe rather the opposite. The reason those kids suffered and died was not because society was too Christian, but rather that it wasn't Christian enough. The spirit of the age is always insidious. Like a fish who doesn't know what water is, it's hard to see the spirit of the age because we live in it and we breathe it. At the time of the residential school program, the spirit of the age took for granted that European Christian society was the most enlightened and advanced society on the planet, and that indigenous people needed to be lifted out of their primitive ways into being productive members of our society. This sounds horrible to contemporary ears. And we know the damage that was done. We're still learning the damage that was done. But in retrospect, a deeper Trinitarian theology at the time might have critiqued those assumptions, maybe drawn a question mark underneath that neat colonialist package. Because if God is a community of distinct persons bound together by self-giving love, then diversity exists within the Godhead. Diversity is closer to God than... Mm, I'm off the page now, so uh, 
I'm lo I've lost the word, uh, monism. I, I, I'm trying to find less than a $10 word and I'm not coming up with one. But this idea that you have to be the same in order to be together. That if you have only one God that's not Trinitarian, you have to be like me for us to be one. But in the Trinity, we can each be distinctly ourselves. And that distinction is part of our oneness because the self-giving love that binds us together is an expression of God's love in and through us. Trinitarian theology, basic, old-fashioned, boring. Now, my concern for today, why have I been following this rabbit hole, is that for all that is good about indigenous reconciliation, ending patriarchy, seeking unity and diversity, all that is good. That is good work, and the Church needs to be engaged in it, 100%. However, if we do that at the expense of the wisdom of our spiritual ancestors— we are left with nothing that can critique the spirit of our age. So we're the generals who are fighting the last war. For example, the word spirituality today has to do almost entirely with our own personal feelings and experiences. I'm a spiritual person because I have spiritual feelings. I explore my spirituality because I seek to have those feelings and experiences. But there is no place in the Trinity for putting your own feelings at the center of who and what is God. Rather, each person in the Godhead empties themselves in love for each other and for creation. However, where that definition, the self-oriented definition of spirituality fits perfectly, is the consumer capitalism of the secular elites. So Trinitarianism critiques our assumptions even about our own Christianized version of secular elite spirituality, where just like going to Europe for yoga retreats, we come to church because it does the same thing for us. It makes us feel warm and good spiritual feelings. And we, we, we evaluate our church like you would any other consumer product, that how does it make me feel? Is it worth the money that I put in? That's the question. But that's consumer capitalism. So by all means, let us pray at for and with our indigenous brothers and sisters, acknowledge their trauma, confess our guilt, work towards reconciliation and redemption. Yes. But let us always remember that it is not the spirit of the age that will save us, it is the gospel that saves us from, among other things, the depredations of the spirit of the age. In the past, colonialism, cultural imperialism, Christian triumphalism led the church to collude with evil. Today, status anxiety and resentment are undermining the tools of our own tradition. In both cases, solid, old-fashioned, Trinitarian theology boring and embarrassing as it may be, is part of the solution, not the problem. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.